you know, again, I mean, what do we do about it? Well, I wish there was some simple answer, right? I mean, you know, uh, but I don't think this is something that's going to be solved on the internet. Welcome to the Faith Without Fear podcast, the ministry of the First Baptist Church of Redlands, California. This podcast is hosted by Senior Pastor Sean Zambros and Associate Pastor Nick Quint. In this episode, we are joined by Brian Elaine, editor of the book How to Heal Our Divides, to talk about polarization, unity, politics, and healing. Welcome back to the Faith Without Fear podcast. It has been a minute or two, but uh, we are joined today by Brian Alain, uh, an editor. Is it editor would probably be the correct term? Editor of How to Heal Our Divides? Yes. And, uh, a practical guide, and it's, uh, it's a very interesting book that was released in 2001, I believe. Uh, so this year, which feels like forever ago. <laughs> My gosh. Uh, and so... Uh, it's a book on addressing kind of the polarization and the heatedness and the friction of our, our culture and not just the culture, but church and life in general. And so we're so thankful to have uh, you on with us, Brian, to kind of delve into this and kind of maybe give us a bird's eye view of the way the church can be involved in all of this and maybe be a place of healing and sacredness again. You know, feels like we've always been that, but it feels like it's a little difficult these days. But so welcome to the Faith Without Fear podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes. And uh, so would you mind just, uh, you know, where where do you come from and where are you going? Where is where has God led you in, in your life? Where's uh, What's your faith background and, and your sure, journey? Sure, sure. So um, I grew up United Methodist. I've been kind of, uh, I guess, what you consider mainline Protestant all my life. I've uh, been members of UCC churches, um, Reformed Church of America, you know, what used to be the Dutch Reformed Church. Um and I thought about becoming a pastor a couple of different times in my life, but decided that it wasn't a good match for my skill set. Um, so educationally, I've got a bachelor's and master's in electrical engineering um, and an MBA. I worked at Bell Laboratories many years ago, and that's the reason why to this day I still live in New Jersey. Um, I grew up in Illinois, but made it out to the East Coast um, because of Bell Labs. Um, but I haven't done, you know, I've worked there for decades now, uh, but I did a whole lot of high tech related stuff, you know, completely different than what I'm doing now. Um, this work is really a second career for me and I'm very thankful and blessed by that. Um, what ended up happening is that, um, I stayed in touch with one of my classmates from business school who asked me to come and work with him a few years ago. And, um, you know, once I was there for two years, he, he came into my office one day and said, I've got a project I'd like you to work on. It's for my father-in-law, Frederick Beekner. And for people- Oh, just, who, just Frederick Beekner. Okay. Yeah, just, just Frederick, Frederick Beekner. Beekner. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, having mostly read business or technology books, I didn't know who he was, right? Um, but I soon dove into his work and was just amazed. Um, you know, now I think he's- quite frankly, the best writer I've ever read. Um, and so for people who are not familiar with his work, he published over 40 books over a period of decades, um, several novels, memoirs, short essays, long essays, sermons, a uh, wide variety. Um, but he never did one iota of self-promotion or marketing his entire career. I, I, there's only one book tour that I know of that he made, which was in 1979 to some churches in Iowa. 
So, <laughs> so his family basically asked me to reintroduce him to a new generation of readers. And so in December, 2012, we launched his first website, um, Facebook, Twitter. Um, we had some old video and audio recordings that we put on YouTube. So um, we also built a seminary partnership program with 50 seminaries all over the world where we donate copies of his books to their students each year, sponsor an annual award, student award for excellence in um, writing or preaching. And we actually came out with three new books, uh, one of which I put together with Anne Lamott, who's a big Frederick Buechner fan. Um, and Mr. Buechner is still alive. He's 95 years old. Um, he's not been you know, actively writing or speaking publicly for quite some time. Um, but in any event, that's what got me involved in this whole you know, spiritual publishing arena. And five years ago, I turned 60. And I said, okay, what do I want to do the rest of my life? Didn't want to go back into high tech. So I started something called Writing for Your Life, which is a resource center for spiritual writers. So um, if you go to writingforyourlife.com, you'll see that I try to give away as many free resources to help spiritual writers as I possibly can. Articles, videos, emails, um, downloadable guides, things like that. And I also do writers conferences. So starting in 2017, we were doing writers conferences in different cities all over the country. Last two years, we've been doing them online. Um, then after I began doing that, I, um, kept hearing the writers of color were really underrepresented in terms of number of books get published. So I said to myself, well, I'm not an agent. I'm not an editor. I don't work at a publishing house. I'm not even really a writer, but everywhere I've ever been in business, so much is dependent upon who, you know, and who knows you. So I said, let me start a conference series specifically to foster relationships between writers of color and people from the publishing industry. So 2018, we started doing that. Um, we had one of those conferences actually in Los Angeles at the University of Southern California. But um, again, you know, more recently, we've, we've been doing those um, uh, online. Then the third project that I launched two years ago is called Compassionate Christianity. Uh, it's CompassionateChristianity.org. And um, that has several different facets to it. One of which is that we have a variety of different resource centers that are curated by um, volunteers. There's one on faith and food, faith and travel. Um, there's children's books, resources, parenting resources, just a variety of things like that. And then we have a blog that tries to, um, you know, highlight uh, compassionate Christian voices. And then the fourth and final project is the one that you're actually contacting me about, which is this thing called How to Heal Our Divides. And um, when the pandemic hit, I started doing lots of video interviews myself. You know, both with authors when they were doing book launches, but I also did a series called Reading Hope in Trying Times, you know, to help people through the pandemic with ideas about what to read. And that just kept going so well, I kept introducing to new people. So I thought, well, you know, after the election, I need to do something along the same lines about healing our divides, because I'd never seen our country so polarized. Um, and I wanted to try to do something to help address that. Um, and the other thing I was doing during the pandemic was reading more than would typically be the case. And a lot of books about anti-racism, about political divides, religious divides, things of that nature. Well, great books, um, but most of them are oriented around, you know, here's the issue. What's the history behind it? You know, how can you look inside yourself to examine your own biases? You know, all really good topics, but very little written about, okay, what do we do about it? So initially, I was just going to do a video interview series with different organizations of people that I 
was able to find that we're actually doing something about healing divides, meaning they were running racial justice training programs or political forums where you try to bring together folks from both sides of either the religious or uh, political spectrum so that they can, you know, talk to each other, be in the same room and not, you know, obliterate each other. Um, and there's, you know, other kinds of divides too. There's one, there's a chapter in the book about abilities, there's about immigration, you know, things like that. Um, and even your internal divides, you know, looking at that too. So initially it was just going to be a video interview series. I thought, well, my gosh, you know, why don't I turn that into a book? I'll just ask each one of these people I'm going to be interviewing to write a chapter in the book. So, um, so I started doing that. I kept getting incredibly positive reception. So I said, okay, I've got to turn this into more, you know, basically a whole platform, meaning websites, social media, emails, the whole nine yards. So um, that's kind of how, how to heal our divides uh, was, was birthed. Um, I ended up self-publishing the book because I wanted to get out as quickly as I possibly could. And just to give you a timeline, um, I started talking with people about it in mid-November of last year and was able to publish the book in May of this year. So basically, you know, six months from concept to delivery of a book, which, you know, for anybody who's familiar with the publishing industry, that just typically doesn't happen. I mean, uh -huh. you know, for a variety of reasons, you know, traditionally published books have got longer lead times, you know, um, and, and for good reasons. But I just felt like I wanted to get this out as quickly as I could because it was so time sensitive, I felt. We need this so badly. Uh -huh. And I was very, very fortunate to have a whole host of not just organizations, but prominent writers, Christian writers, who I have worked with on other fronts who contributed to the project. So Diana Butler-Brass, Brian McLaren, Shane Claiborne, Parker Palmer, Mako Fujimura, Frank Thomas, Michael Waters. I mean, Amy Julia Becker, the list just keeps going on and on. And so I'm very grateful for um, them seeing the need for this and taking the time out of their ridiculously busy schedules to contribute to it. So that was a long answer to your question, but that's kind of, <laughs> you know, how I ended up getting here. If you would have asked me 15 years ago, I would have said, you know, this wasn't even on my radar. None of this mm -hmm. was. Um, I was just doing high tech, <laughs> which I loved. You know, I had a really good time, but oh my goodness, am I thankful to be able to be doing this kind of stuff at this stage of my life? Um, because now it's the first time I've ever had my own business. The first time I've ever had a business associated with my faith. You know, I can go work on things that I think need to be dealt with and not that I'm going to solve all these problems by any stretch of the imagination, but I can hopefully at least contribute to working away at some of these terribly serious problems that we have for our society. Yeah, it's interesting to, to think about an engineer impacting the world so much through all of these other, uh, through these media, particularly writing but what a perfect way to do it, get everybody else to do the writing, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and then you put it all together. I mean, that's just, uh, that's really exciting. It's well, exciting. it's the same thing in my writer's conferences. I don't know anything about writing, you know, or editing or anything like that, but, you know, I'm just fortunate to have a great groups of, of folks that do, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and so, you know, I love working with them. I love, you know, being able to bring, you know, hopefully the best in class 
from a quality perspective and a caring perspective and um, an intellectual perspective, you know, to bear on all these different projects. Yeah, and and actually what you do like this um, is what you're trying to do with the book, um, bringing people together um, and, uh, you know, creating that forum for bringing people together. I appreciate in the book how each part is very readable. So it's not a daunting thing to look at, at, at this book and go, oh, you know, but you go, well, I can read that chapter, <laughs> you know, and, and all that. And then you read the chapter about real people doing real things and you go, oh, okay, well, maybe I could do this or that. It gives exactly. you ideas of what, what you can do. It's pretty, uh, uh, that's, a, that's a really great thing about the book. Well, that's exactly what I was trying to foster because I wasn't aware of most of these organizations before I started, you know, asking around or digging into it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, on the nightly news or whatever, you know, we hear all the bad things that are going on. We don't hear about all these people who are actually doing this, spending their livelihood, um, trying to make a difference to improve things on serious fronts right so it's like okay well these folks need to be known about (laughs) and so you know the whole purpose of the book the whole purpose of the platform is to shine a light and build awareness of folks doing really good things to try to help what you know are pretty obviously some intractical intractable problems Mm -hmm. yeah and bringing people together that you never thought could come together exactly yeah yeah which is like I, I, it's weird, you know, thinking about the the thirty thousand foot view of you know the polarization and all that. Like, I remember, I mean, the first big election I remember is is I was what thirteen, fourteen, and the Bush Gore thing in two thousand, the the huge fight about that. But even then, my parents had friends coming over that they didn't agree with, and they were eating dinner together, and they were spending time together, making little jabs at each other. But you know, they're eating around a table, and there wasn't there wasn't this sense of uh, of acidity towards other people. And I mean, even, you know, you go, the further we seem to have gone on from that point, and I'm not saying that's the focal point, there's a whole history, you know, of, of little mosaic strands that kind of, you know, weave together. Um, but that was the first time I remember like, wow, people actually that I can tell don't agree on stuff are actually sitting and eating together. And that, that seems to be the last real strong memory I have of people, at least in election season, being a time where people are willing to kind of, all right, we'll put this on the table here, but we'll come to this table and eat. And I don't know where, obviously, I think it's too much to ask all of us to figure out how, where, how did we get to this point? Um, but we can certainly say the past four years have been like throwing, a, we might say, a jet fuel on a raging tire fire. Um, and so I, so taking like a 30,000 foot view, it's, um, it's daunting. But I think Sean was so right about the each chapter. It's, you, can, you can digest it easily. You can look through it. Um, so where, where do you think kind of, how do we assess kind of the modern kind of maybe we say the, the crisis of, of, of unity um, and diversity and how we, we balance all that. Where do you see the crisis kind of at its point right now, if you were to give kind of a medical diagnosis of kind of where we are as a, as a culture and as a nation, as a, as a world even, maybe if we want to get that cosmic about it, where do you see kind of the crisis points? Well, um, you know, kind of getting back to how, how did this happen, right? You know, the, the phenomenon you just described and the, how different things were 20 years ago right. than they are today. To me, there's two main factors as to what contributed to that. One is that people found that pouring the fuel on the fire was beneficial in a lot of different ways to whatever they wanted to accomplish, right? Whether that was, you know, sell ads on Facebook or get listeners to watch their cable news network or, you know, their own political benefit, whatever the case may be, people became astute at doing that. 
So that seems to be number one. Number two, an even broader question. I I was very fortunate in the early part of my career when I was doing all those high tech things to spend a lot of time overseas, um, particularly in Asia, where um, you know I went to China, went to India, Taiwan, Korea, all these places. And a lot of what I saw was that there were really smart people who lived in a context that didn't allow them to really economically gain the benefit of their skills, mm. right? For all kinds of historical reasons. But at that point in time, you know, the cost of labor in all those countries was dramatically less than it was in the United States. And so, you know, since that period of time, we've seen manufacturing go overseas. We've seen engineering in a large regard go overseas, all kinds of other functions that, you know, corporate America, quite frankly, and I was part of this, um, chose to source from less expensive places. And so, you know, our standard of living here was ridiculously high compared to the rest of the world. And I said to myself, this is not sustainable. This huge, enormous gap has got to end up closing at some point in time. And I thought, you know, when that happens, there's not going to be a lot of happy campers in the United States mm. because we've had it so good. You know, after World War II, we were the last man standing, right? All these other countries were pretty much, you know, obliterated, right, by the war, and we weren't. And, you know, we had a heyday economically, making all this really wonderful stuff, right, that we made, and lots of progress on all kinds of different fronts. But we got so far ahead of the rest of the world that I just felt like, okay, there's going to be... a time where those gaps close and a lot of people in the United States aren't going to have any clue that this is happening, you know, that this is a cause of why it's so much tougher for their children to make it quote unquote, than it was for them. Right. And we've seen that across the board, how difficult it is for, you know, most everybody, <laughs> other than a small percentage of people to, um, be able to have better lives than what maybe they expected or what their parents had or what have you. So to me, those are the main two things. You know, one is an incredibly macro event that I I really don't think that a lot of Americans, I I was just very fortunate that I had, I happened to have this exposure to these other countries and see what it was like and saw that, you know, there was an opportunity for them and it was a challenge for us. And then this other thing about, you know, just the, the use of television of technology to as very powerful tools, right? It can be used and misused. And um, we've seen them put to the benefit of corporations, the benefit of politicians, the benefit of people that are trying to drive these divides. So, you know, again, I mean, what do we do about it? Well, I wish there was some simple answer, right? I mean, you know, um, but... I don't think this is something that's going to be solved on the internet or solved by TV or solved at any kind of level other than your level. You know, it's a grassroots kind of thing that, you know, at the individual congregational level, the individual person level, you know, we've got to learn how to, how to cooperate and how to talk to each other and stay in the same room without throwing things at each other, walking out or what have you. And, you know, one statistic, there's a, so if you follow How to Heal Our Divides, you'll, you'll see that I've got a blog where I post excerpts from lots of books on different subjects, you know, relative to 
political, racial, religious kind of divides. Um, one of them is a book that came out, I think it was last year, called White Too Long uh, by Robert P. Jones. And I interviewed him about that book. And one of the things he said was that you know, he works for a company called PRRI, does a lot of polling and research on some of these things. He said that they found that over 75% of white people in the United States don't have a meaningful relationship with a person of color. Hmm. You know, they might work with them and have casual relationships, things like that, but anytime to a meaningful relationship that you can have a you know, serious conversation with. So if we don't even know each other, how can we sit inside of somebody else's skin? How can we empathize and really understand what they go through? And, and so, you know, we've got this us versus them mentality that's so ridiculously entrenched now. Um, and us versus them on all kinds of different issues, whether it's race or politics or LGBTQ or immigration or healthcare or <laughs> dot, dot, dot. I mean, uh, it's, it's a very challenging time the polarization level has just gotten ridiculous. And I mean, I just felt like, okay, well, you know, here's some organizations actually succeeding at bringing people of opposite polarity, so to speak, you know, together. We either it's a common mission project or it's a forum or it's a training or, you know, I, I don't pretend that I have the answers to do this. And, and personally speaking, I don't think I have the patience, you know, to be able to lead some of those kinds of things. <laughs> But thank goodness there are people who do. Yeah, well, I noticed um, sort of uh, something that jumped out in a couple of different of the chapters, uh, this idea of how we use language, even um, language of, of empowering, but also language that, oh, even groups that are trying to bring people together over racial divides and language that causes people to uh, be, um, you know, like, I don't want to go to something that's going to change me, you know, kind of thing, change the language or the title or the name of what it is to where you're now bringing people together to create, to solve a problem that's outside of yourself, not really outside of yourself. I mean, when you get down to it, if you start there, you, you begin to see what's inside of yourself, but you don't start with, well, you're a bad person who has these bad, you know, uh, all, all of these things are wrong with you, but it's like, let's get together and, and, um, you know, uh, get rid of racism together you know, uh, rather than racial sensitivity, <laughs> you know, and all that. Now, Obviously, you're going to get to the racial sensitivity, but but you're using different kind of language that brings people together. They go, oh, yeah, I'm I'm willing to dismantle racism. That, I thought that was an interesting thing. And it, it sort of uh, in different chapters, you know, you, um, it, it, it was maybe doing something different, but it had to do with the power of language and the power of what we call things and uh, how we describe things and 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 that kind of thing. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and I mean, some of these forums, you know, they don't go into it with the expectation they're going to change people's minds. Mm -hmm. They go into it saying, just see if you can listen to each other and mm -hmm. hear them out. Yeah. And, you know, have a civil conversation. And, and so they have some rules about, you know, what, what they ask you to do and not do or say and not say, you know, to your point about language. But, you know, the objective is just to start having meaningful conversations where people listen to each other and start to empathize with each other 
And maybe that will lead to some other change, but you know, that's not what they're trying to accomplish at least, you know, what they want. (laughs) And there's an immense power in the idea of social shame. And, and of course that's generational and you've got this whole thing of, you know, people feeling shame for something they don't believe they did, even if they were contributors to it or, uh, recipients of the positive, you know, that, and all that sort of stuff. And there is this sense of, um, at least that I've noticed, there's a genuine sense of fear, not and of other people, but also of, and it's the specter of sin, right? The specter of sin and shame and all that sort of stuff kind of lingering back here of how have I contributed to this? And will that, have I been basically the victim miser versus the victim or, and it, I think it forces a lot of people to kind of stop and slow down and be introspective and reflect, or if I use the language of pray, um, it, there's a, a great deal of, of, of anxiety in the idea that you've been a, 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 a participant in, 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 you know, systemic racism or something like that. And for a lot of people, it's, I don't even want to go there. And therefore, you know, the walls come up and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's just interesting. Yeah. And, but discomfort's good. Discomfort, you know, can kind of push you to, you know, hopefully go somewhere with it. But I, I was struck by in the book and this phrase stuck out to me uh, in Brian McLaren's um, chapter. It's from uh, Annie Leonard. It's an environmentalist and scientist, I believe said, there is no away. When you throw something away, it must go somewhere. And there's that idea of we can push the, I don't know, uh, the Trump supporter over there, or we can push the Biden supporter over there, but they're still going somewhere and they still need to eat and sleep and, and live. And does that push over there or that push over there force them into kind of their own, we would say ideological segregated kind of minds where these things get reinforced, you know, Oh, I was persecuted for this. And that reinforces a kind of tribal identity. And I'm wondering how the church can be a place that kind of like Jesus graciously challenges the entire idea of having uh, separate ideologies or separate places for separate people. And it seems like the church being a place of one body kind of challenges the idea of, well, we can put these people over here or we don't want these people here. And it challenges the idea of the country club-esque nature of how a lot of things seem to operate. Um, I don't know what you think of that. I'm kind of thinking off the top of my head, uh, I'm trying to piece all this together myself. It's such a, it's like eating a, trying to eat an elephant with a, with a plastic spork. <laughs> And the elephant's well, alive and kicking. So, I mean, um, you know, stepping back in theory, the Christian church would be the best place to lead with some of these issues, right? Just by following Jesus' model, right? You know, I mean, he certainly didn't separate people by race, right? He, he certainly didn't avoid the marginalized in any way, shape, or form. He tried to lift up the marginalized. He tried to show how the empire at that time was so destructive and oppressive and how, you know, we needed to care about other things than money or power or, you know, who was in control. We need to care about, you know, blessed our X, Y, Z, right? I mean, so you know, what a model for us to try to follow. Why hasn't that happened? Why has that not happened, right? So I think, and I'm not in any way talking about your guys' specific church, but I think a lot of churches are afraid to confront some of these difficult things because they're afraid that X percent of the congregation is going to leave 
which means that their donations are going to be cratered, which means that they have to lay off some of their people or they can't afford their building or whatever the case may be, right? So there's a lot of fear about upsetting the apple cart. Now, I don't think Jesus worried too much about upsetting the apple cart. Um, we saw plenty of um, examples of that in you know, the Gospels. Um, somehow we got to reclaim that and be willing to take risks, knowing that, you know, the current church structure, denominational structure or whatever, you know, it's a risk anyway, <laughs> right? I mean, look at the, the numbers, you know, in terms of um, members and donations and things like that over the last 20 years, 30 years, whatever the right framework is. And you all probably have read Phyllis Tickle's books, where she talks about how basically Christianity every 500 years has destroyed itself and reincarnated itself, resurrected itself, um, you know, in new ways. And, you know, there are a lot of folks feeling like something like that's going on right now. And none of us know what it's going to look like next. Right. But what it looks like now, you know, I've gone to church in my life. I love the congregations I've been and I love lots of aspects of that I, I greatly appreciate that my children were able to grow up in that kind of community incredibly meaningful for me and my wife but <laughs> we've got tougher problems to solve you know I mean um and and there are things that seem to be in the way of getting that done so again, I don't pretend to have the answer. You know, what should church look like? You know, what should following right. Jesus look like? I mean, what should, what's the number one priority that you, the three of us ought to take tomorrow, right? You know, to make something happen. I mean, I, I can't answer those questions. I wish I could, but just, it's just one of these things where wherever, wherever we can each chip away, right? And whatever small sphere of influence that we happen to have. Um, if we get enough people doing that, it'll make a big difference. Um, the challenge is getting enough people to do that, right? I mean, and this is back to my complaint a moment ago about, you know, all we hear about is the bad news. We don't hear about what the good things are that people were doing. All of our efforts are so fragmented, you know, um, as opposed to being the noisiest, you know, and the, and the biggest money that tend to get people's attention. Yeah, there was that one chapter that talked about the sermon series that, you know, they picked out every possible con <laughs> controversial issue. And they I love that. Sermon series, and I'm just going, oh, no. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, so Mark Feldmeyer is who you're referring to, who wrote yeah. that chapter. He wrote a book that came out last year called The House Divided. He, he's the pastor of a church in suburban Denver, where he did, you know, exactly what you were saying, Sean. I mean, he did a whole sermon series on the most controversial topics that you could come up with. And he is the pastor, senior pastor of a church that is not by any means uniform um, in its political views or, or others views. Um, so it took a lot of risk, right. To do that. But he said the whole thing was incredibly well received. And, mm -hmm. you know, the tack that he took was to try to come up with, you know, some things where people could step back and say, you know, yes, I agree with this and you kind of referred to this earlier too sean you know it's like what are some common some element of common ground you know on topic x right that 
most you know people on either side of the spectrum could agree on and use that as a starting point to discuss you know whatever else is around that topic but at least you know finding some common good or common ground to start with but when i read his book i, I said okay well i need to talk to mark about you know him being involved in this project because i felt like he did what i think would be a wonderful model. I don't know how many people could pull it off effectively. I mean, mm -hmm. just like anything else, right? I mean, it's not an easy task, but but he, uh, I think it was a role model in that regard. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of what we see in the book is not so much like, uh, here's here's the step-by-step -step plan. To, it, it is how to, but it's not how to in that how can you do it, but it's this is how other people have done it. And then um, inspire, you know, hopefully in one's own context, um, how they might uh, make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly the, right. the approach that I was trying to take is because, I, you know, all this is too complex and too big to, to, to have some solution. We know right. what the solution was that we would have done that. Right. Right. But yeah, you see all these different examples of people that are effectively making a difference. Right. Mm -hmm. in different sections. And I felt like, well, let me bring together, you know, a variety of these kinds of areas and let people see what they resonate with the most, you know, for their own particular area of interest or vocation or, you know, what they're passionate about mm -hmm. and see if, you know, they can find something in there to either get involved in directly or use as a role model. Um, one of the groups in, in, the, in the book is called Three Practices. They do some of these forums, you know, that we were talking about where they, you know, put people of opposite, you know, um, views in the same room and help them speak with each other. Because of the book, they had people coming to them saying, hey, I'd like to be not only involved in what you're doing, but I'd like to be trained as a trainer so I can lead some of these groups myself. Wow. So, Hallelujah. That's exactly what I hoped would happen is <laughs> something, something like that, right? You know, so uh, hallelujah. And it, it seems like, too, just thinking, thinking about the other as another versus the other as other is, is a big way of getting to that point where you see the person that you're engaging with that you maybe stereotype or you think a certain way about them. If you see them as first and foremost as someone that Jesus loved— I mean, what it, Pastor Sean preached on, uh, preached from the lectionary on Sunday, and it's on the the rich young ruler coming to Jesus, you know, and, and Mark's gospel. And what does what does Mark say? Jesus loved him, and of course, Jesus didn't let him get away with how he was talking to him, but it says that Jesus loved him. So Jesus had already a, a disposition, a posture, an attitude towards this person who was being slightly, well, a little too high on his horse, so to speak, but. Maybe that's a, a very instantaneous model that we can instant we can look at very quickly and go, oh, Jesus operated with the presumption of love and affection and caring care towards another person, regardless of what this person was going to say to him. And maybe as just something we can do on day to day, you know, breaking it down to a base level, just when someone approaches you and you've got those the hackles back here, you know, the that are raising up on your neck, or you know, you feel your your heart rate going up maybe stopping going jesus loved this person died for this person was raised for this person so i at least need to try to look at that person like how jesus would look at that person it doesn't mean you do it right or perfectly you know maybe it takes a lifetime and then some but 
the heart of Jesus towards the rich young ruler was of love, not of kind of a instantaneous smackdown, you know, or, oh boy, I can't wait to make this guy an object lesson, you know, for, for faith. Uh, maybe that's a way I'm just thinking about what Pastor Sean preached on Sunday. And that immediately came to mind was Jesus loved this person and then had a frank conversation with him. But that conversation came from a place of love and affection and care. Well, one of the things that that implies is, is one of the principles that, like I know one of these groups uses, which is take winning off the table, winning the argument, mm-hmm. right? Or whatever it is, you know, don't, don't go into the kind of discussion trying to convert someone, trying to convince them, whatever, take winning off the table and just have a conversation, right? So, you know, to your point about, well, how, how did Jesus love these people? Well, that's one of the things he did, right? He, he didn't assume that they were all bad, that, you know, the, the stereotype you mentioned too, right? We all, we all tend to stereotype each other. Well, they're an X. That means they think blah, 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 right? And they probably don't. Right. I mean, you know, think all those things that we assume that they do. Right. So another precept was, you know, one of the groups is, you know, don't compare your or their worst with my best, you know, that kind of thing. Don't assume their worst against my best or whatever. Mm -hmm. So those taking off the table and this, you know, worst, best thing, you know, are some examples, right. Of what, I mean, the the other thing, (laughs) Brian McLaren wrote this ebook, and I, I always forget the name of it, but um, it basically, he has it on his website, he sells it for like five bucks or something like that. But basically what he did after the 2016 election was talk with a bunch of sociologists and psychiatrists and whatever about how did this happen? You know, I just don't understand how this happened. And so in the book, he talks about all these different forms of biases that we all exhibit, confirmation bias, um, you know, community bias, um, complacency bias, you know, we all as humans tend to try to simplify things. Our minds do that in order to survive, right? In order to, because we can't understand the complexity of everything that we would need to. So we, we try to simplify things and it turns into these different biases. Um, and uh, in the book, he points out how Jesus' words were cognizant of these biases. And he said things in certain ways, right, to not put people on the defensive, to immediately jump to some conclusion because of all their biases. So um, if, if, you, if you get a chance, uh, you know, go to his website, his, his, I think it's his store, like that, is where you can, um, you know, why, something like, why doesn't everyone get it? You know, understanding biases in yourself and others, just excellent. Is there anything else that... Um you want us to know about this book? <laughs> no, let's see, I mean, a couple of different things. One is that there is a group discussion guide um, uh-huh. that we recently came out with. There's a free version that's a PDF that you can just download from the How to Heal Our Divides website, or there's a print version that you can order for three bucks or something like that on Amazon. Um, it's intended for either uh, four, six, or eight week uh, discussion groups uh, organized in, in those uh, options. So, you know, there's just kind of questions, food for thought, emanating from the different chapters of the book. So uh, hopefully that will be helpful. And I'm in the really early stages of recruiting folks to write a second book. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> so since the time when I recruited the folks for the first book, I've learned of lots of other organizations that are doing great work. 
that I'd love to highlight and get the word out about them. Thank you for listening to the Faith Without Fear podcast, a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Redlands, California. Our music was composed and written by Garrett Zambros. If you're looking for a church home, we encourage you to browse our website at www.fbcredlands.org, where you'll find our sermon series and links to our YouTube channel.